Part One, Chapter Nine of the Dead Letter by Meta Victoria Fuller Victor. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Spider and the Fly. Come, said my Cicerone, we are already very late. A rapid walk of a few minutes brought us to the entrance of a handsome house, having the appearance of a private residence, and standing on a fashionable street. Why, said I, inclined to draw back as he ascended the steps, you surely would not think of disturbing the people here at this hour of the night? There is not a light to be seen, even in the chambers. Mr. Burton's low laugh made me blush at my own greenness. His ring at the bell was followed by a knock, which I was quick-witted enough, in spite of my verdancy, to perceive had something significant about it. The door immediately swung a little open. My friend said a few words, which had the effect to unclose the mysterious portal still wider, and we entered a modest hall, which a single gas-burner, half-turned off, dimly illuminated. The manservant who admitted us was sable as ebony, muscular, much above the medium size, dressed in a plain livery, and with manners as polished as his own shining skin, an African leopard barring the spots, smooth and powerful. "'Is Bagley still here?' asked my companion. "'Yes, sir, in the library, just where you left him.' "'Very well. You need not disturb him. I have brought my young friend in to introduce him to the house, in view of further acquaintance.' The ebony man smiled respectfully, bowing for us to pass into the parlour. I thought I saw in that quiet smile a lurking ray of satisfaction, a gloating, as it were, over my prospective intimacy at this respectable house. He had probably been ushered to the maelstrom long enough to know that those whose feet were once caught in the slow, delightful waltz of the circling waters never withdrew them, after the circle grew narrow and swift, and the rush of the whirlpool sounded up from the bottomless pit. We entered a suite of rooms in no manner differing from the parlours of a private house. They were richly furnished and well-lighted, close inner blinds hidden by heavy silk curtains shutting in the light from the observation of the street. There were three rooms in this suit. The first two were now deserted, though the odour of wine and scented hair and handkerchiefs showed that they had been recently occupied. In these two the chandeliers were partially obscured, but the third room was still brilliantly illuminated. We walked toward it. Magnificent curtains of amber silk depended from the arch which separated it from the parlours. Only one of these curtains was now drawn back, the others trailing on the carpet and closing the apartment from our observation. Mr. Burton placed me in the shadow of the curtains, where I could see, myself unseen. The room was furnished as a library, two of its walls being covered with books. I particularly noticed a marble bust of Shakespeare, very fine. A severe yet liberal taste marked the choice and arrangement of everything. A painting of Tasso reading his poems to the princess hung between the two back windows. It was a well-arranged library, certainly, yet the four occupants were engrossed in a study more fascinating than that of any of the books by which they were surrounded. If Mephistopheles could have stepped from his binding of blue and gold and made the acquaintance of the company, he would have been quite charmed. Two couples sat at two tables playing cards. All the other visitors to the establishment had gone away, some of them to theft or suicide, perhaps, save those four, who still lingered, wrapped up in the dread enchantment of the hour. The two at the table I first glanced at were both strangers to me. At the second I could not see the face of one of the players, whose back was toward me, 
but the face of the other was directly in front of me, and under the full light of the chandelier. This person was James Argyll. My astonishment was profound. That I had never fraternized with him, I considered partly my own fault. There are persons so naturally antagonistic as to make real friendship between them impossible, and I had often blamed myself for our mutual coldness. But with all my dislike of some of his qualities, as for instance his indolent acceptance of his uncle's bounty, which in the eyes of a person of my disposition took away half his manliness, with all my unfriendly aversion to him, I had never suspected him of absolutely bad habits. I had to look twice to assure myself of his identity, and having looked I could not take away my eyes from the strange attraction of a countenance transformed by the excitement of the gaming-table. His dark complexion had blanched to a sallow paleness. Cheeks and lips were of the same color. His nose seemed to have sharpened, and was drawn in about the face with a pinched look. His eyebrows were very slightly contracted, but fixed, as if cut in marble, while underneath them the lids were drawn together, so that only a line of the eye was visible, a narrow line, letting out a single steady ray from the lurid world within. The lids appeared as if the eyeballs had shrunken in the intensity of their gaze. Silently the cards were dealt and played. It was evidently the closing game, upon which much depended, how much, for James, I could only guess, by the increasing pallor and absorption of his countenance. "'I wish I could see his opponent's face,' I whispered to my companion. "'You would see nothing but the face of the devil, coolly amusing himself. Bagley never gets excited. He has ruined a dozen young men already.' The last card was thrown down. The two players arose simultaneously. "'Well, Bagley,' said James, with a desperate laugh, "'You'll have to wait for the money until I—' "'Marry the young lady,' said the other. "'That is the agreement, I believe, but don't consent to a long engagement. "'I shall find some means to pay these last two debts before that happy consummation, I hope. "'You shall hear from me within a month.' "'We shall make a little memorandum of them,' said his opponent. "'And as they went together to a writing-desk, Mr. Burton drew me away.' I could hardly breathe when we got into the street. I was so suffocated with rage at hearing the reference made by those two men under that unholy roof to the woman so revered and sacred in my thoughts. I was certain that Miss Argyle was the young lady whose fortune was to pay these debts of honour, contracted in advance upon such security. If his strong hand had not silently withheld me, I do not know but I should have made a scene which would have been as unwise as useless. I was thankful afterward that I was prevented, though I chafed under the restraint at the time. Neither of us spoke until we were in the house of my host, where a fire in the library awaited us. Before this we seated ourselves, neither of us feeling sleepy after our night's adventures. "'How did you know that Argyle was at that house? I had no idea that he intended coming to the city to-day,' I said. "'He had no intention until he learned of your sudden departure.' He came down in the next train, to see what you were about. He is uneasy about you, Mr. Redfield, didn't you know it? As he could ascertain nothing satisfactory about your doings, or mine, he had nothing better on his hands this evening than to look up his friend Bagley. How do you know all this? The detective half smiled, his piercing eyes fixed reflectively on the fire. I should be poorly able to support my pretensions if I could not keep the circle of my acquaintance under my observation. I was informed of his arrival in town, upon my return from Brooklyn, and have known of his whereabouts since. 
I could tell you what he had for supper, if it would interest you. The uneasy feeling which I had several times experienced in Mr. Burton's society came over me again. I spoke a little quickly. I wonder if you have your secret agents, spirits of the air or electricity, they might almost seem to be, hovering always on my steps. He laughed, but not unpleasantly, looking me through with those steel-blue rays. Would it trouble you to fancy yourself under surveillance? I never liked fetters of any kind. I yield my choice of will and action to nobody. However, if any one finds satisfaction in playing the part of my shadow, I don't know that I shall suffer any restraint upon that account. I don't think it would disturb you seriously, he said. No one likes to be watched, Mr. Burton. We are all watched by the pure and penetrating eye of the all-seeing one, and if we are not fearful before him, whom need we shrink from? I looked up to see whether it was the secret police agent who was preaching to me, or whether my host, in his power of varying the outer manifestations of his character, had not dropped the mystic star for the robe of the minister. He was gazing into the fire with a sad, absorbed expression, as if he saw before him a long procession of mortal crimes, walking in the night of earth, but in reality under the full brightness of infinite day. I had seen him before in these solemn, almost prophetic moods, brought on him by the revelation of some new sin, which seemed always in him to awaken regret, rather than the exultation of a detective bent on the successful results of his mission. So soft, so gentle he appeared then, I inwardly wondered that he had the sternness to inflict disgrace and exposure upon the respectable guilty, which class of criminals he was almost exclusively employed with but I had only to reflect upon the admirable equipoise of his character, to realize that with him justice was what he loved best. For those who prowled about society in the garb of lambs and shepherd-dogs, seeking whom they might devour, and laying, perhaps, the proofs of guilt at the doors of the innocent, he had no mercy of the let-us-alone type. A little time we were silent. The dropping of an ember from the grate startled us. Why do you think that James watches me? what does he watch me for? I asked this, going back to the surprise I had felt when he had made the remark. You will know soon enough. It was useless for me to press the question, since he did not wish to be explicit. I did not know, I continued. I never dreamed that James had bad associates in the city. I know that his uncle and cousins do not suspect it. It pains me more than I can express. What shall I do? I have no influence over him. He dislikes me and would take the most brotherly remonstrance as an insult. I do not wish you at present to hint your discovery to him. As for your not suspecting his habits, those habits themselves are recent. I doubt if he had ever ventured a dollar on cards three months ago. He had some gay, even dissolute companions in the city, of whom the worst and the most dangerous was Bagley, but he had not joined them in their worst excesses. He was only idle and fond of pleasure, a moth fluttering about the flames, now he has scorched his wings. He has not spent more than three or four nights as he spent this, and the only money he has lost has been to the person you saw him with to-night. Bagley is one of the vampires who fatten on the characters and purses of young men like James Argyle. Then ought we not to make some earnest effort to save him before it is too late? Oh, Mr. Burton, you who are wise and experienced, tell me what to do. Why do you feel so much interest in him? You do not like him." I could not see the merest stranger go down toward destruction without stretching forth my hand. There is no great friendship between us, it is true, but James is nearly connected with the happiness and reputation of the family I honor most on earth. For its sake, 
I would make the utmost endeavour. "'For the interest of justice, then, it is well that I am not related to the Argyles by the personal ties which affect you. I will tell you one thing. James does not gamble so much from weakness of will to resist temptation as he does to forget, for a time, under the influence of the fascinating excitement and anxiety which he carries about with him. "'You're a close observer, Mr. Burton. James has, indeed, been deeply troubled lately. I have noticed the change in him, in his appetite, complexion, manners, in a thousand trifles, a change which grows upon him daily. He is gnawed upon by secret doubts, now raised by hopes, now depressed by fears, until he is fitful and uncertain as a light carried in an autumn wind. But I can tell you that he is all wrong in indulging this vain hope, which creates the doubt. I know what it is, and how utterly without foundation. It is weakness, wickedness in him, to allow a passion which ought only to ennoble him and teach him self-control, to chase him to such ruin as I saw to-night. That is your way of viewing the matter, Mr. Redfield. We all see things according to the colour of the spectacles we happen to wear. Then you think it is a growing certainty that Miss Argyle, even under her present relief from past vows, will never favour his suit, nor that of any man which is driving her cousin to these reckless habits? I was half offended with him for mentioning her name in that manner, but I knew that mine was an extreme, if not a morbid sensitiveness, where she was concerned, and I swallowed my resentment, answering, I fear it is. That may explain his disquiet to you. So be it. Still, Mr. Burton was keeping something back from me, always keeping something back. I did not feel at all sleepy. I was full of eager thought. I reviewed, with a lightning glance, all that he had ever said, all James had recently done or said, and, I swear, had it not been for the almost affectionate kindness of his general manner to me, and my belief in his candour, which would not allow him to play the part of a friend while acting the part of an enemy, I should have felt that Mr. Burton suspected me of that appalling crime which I was so busily seeking to fix upon the head of a frail, frightened woman. Again the idea, and not for the first time, crept through my veins, chilling me from head to foot. I looked him full in the eyes. If he had such a thought, I would pluck it out from behind that curtain of deception, and make him acknowledge it. If he had such a thought, James had introduced it to his mind. I knew that James had had some interviews with him, of which I was only cognizant by casual observations dropped by my host. How many more conclaves they may have had was left to my imagination to conjecture. What was this man before me playing this double part for? A friend to each, but never to both together. The reader may smile, and answer that it is the very calling and existence of a detective to play a double part, and that I ought not to be chagrined to find him exercising his fine talents upon me. Perhaps James also had reason to fancy himself this man's confidant and friend, who was playing us, one against the other, for purposes of his own. It was the thought that Mr. Burton, before whom more than any other person in this world, except my mother, I had been wild to lay open my soul, could suspect me of any hidden part in that dark tragedy which chilled me to the marrow. But no, it was impossible. I saw it now in the frank and smiling eyes which met my searching and lengthy gaze. There, he cried gaily, there is a ray of actual sunrise. The fire is out, the room is chilly, the morning has come upon us. We have sat out the night, Richard. Let me show you to your room. We will not breakfast until nine o'clock, and you can catch a couple of hours' repose in the meantime. He took up a lamp, and we ascended the stairs. 
Here is your chamber. Now, remember, I bid you sleep, and let that clock in your brain run down. It is bad for the young to think too deeply. Good morning. He passed on as I closed the door of my chamber. His tone had been that of an elder friend, speaking to a young man whom he loved. I had wronged him by that unpleasant idea which had shivered through me. Closed shutters and thick curtains kept out the broadening light of dawn, yet I found it difficult to compose myself to sleep. That haunting shadow which had flitted from Henry's grave as I approached it yesterday, the dream which I had in the little chamber, awakening to the reality of the sewing-girl's escape. I could not banish these any more than I could the discovery made in that house of sin, where the bloated spider of play weaves his glittering net, and sits on the watch for the gay and brilliant victims who flutter into its meshes. One feeling I had, connected with that discovery, which I had not betrayed to Mr. Burton, which I would not fairly acknowledge to my own soul, which I quarrelled with, drove out, but which persisted in returning to me now, banishing slumber from my eyelids. When I had stood behind those silken curtains, and beheld James Argyle losing money in play, I had experienced a sensation of relief, I might say of absolute gladness, a sensation entirely apart from my sorrow at finding him in such society, with such habits. Why? Ah, do not ask me. I cannot tell you yet. Do not wrong me by saying that it was triumph over the fall of my rival in Mr. Argyle's affections. In business, possibly, and in the regards of those two noble girls whose opinions we both prize so highly. Only do not accuse me of this most apparent reason for my gladness, and I will abide my time in your judgment. But no, I will confess this much to-night myself. If this stealthy and flying creature whom we two men were hunting from one hiding-place to another, whose wild face had been seen pressing toward the library window on that night of nights, and whose handkerchief the very thorns of the roses had conspired to steal from her, and hold as a witness against her, if this doubtful, eluding creature, flitting darkly in the shadows of this tragedy, had not abstracted that money from Mr. Argyle's desk, I had dared to guess who might have taken it, simply and solely, not because I did not like him, but because, to go back to the Friday before that fatal Saturday, I had been late in the parlors. The girls were singing and playing at the piano. I left turning the music for them to go for a volume in the library, which I desired to carry off with me to read in my room that night. I opened the door suddenly and startled James, who was leaning over that desk. "'Have you seen my opera-glass?' said he. "'I left it on the desk, here.' I answered him that I had not seen it, got my book, and returned to the music, thinking no more of that trifling occurrence, which I never more should have recalled had it not been for a peculiar expression in James's face, which I was afterward forced to remember against my will. Yet so little did I wish to wrong him, even in my secret thoughts, that when the investigations were taking place I was convinced, with all the others, that the unlawful visitor of the garden had, in some manner, possessed herself of the money. It only came back to me as I watched James this night in the gambling saloon, that, if ever he had been tempted to rob from his uncle more than the unfailing generosity of that good gentleman allowed him, I was glad that it was play which had tempted him to the wrongful act. This was the shadowy nature of my pleasure. Who has complete mastery of his thoughts? Who does not sometimes find them evil, unwarrantable, uncomfortable, and to be ashamed of? From the perplexity of all these things I sunk into a slight slumber, 
from which I was almost immediately aroused by the tinkling of the breakfast bell. I arose, dressed, and upon descending to the library was met by a servant, who ushered me at once into a cheerful apartment, where my host sat by the window, reading the morning paper, and where the table only waited my appearance to be graced by a well-ordered meal. "'Lenore usually presides over the tea-urn,' said Mr. Burton, as we sat down. "'We have a little affair which answers for two, and which is adapted to the strength of her little hands. It seems pleasantest so, and we both like it. But she has not arisen this morning.' "'I hope she is not more unwell than usual,' I said, with real solicitude. "'To tell you the truth, she was not at all benefited by what occurred yesterday. She is nervous and exhausted. I have been up to see her. I know that when the doctor comes to-day he will guess what I have been about, and blame me. I mean it shall be the last time in which I experiment upon her.' "'I shall regret it if she is really injured by it, despite my intense desire to learn what she revealed.' Perhaps it was from our selfishness in making use of this exquisite instrument for purposes so earthly that we are punished by the fruitlessness of the results. Mr. Burton laughed. Perhaps. Punishment, however, seldom appears fitly meted out, this side of the Stygian River. My Lenore will be better this afternoon, and I have strong hopes that, with the light now before us, we shall secure our prize. If that woman escapes me now, I shall set her down as a lunatic. Only an insane person could have the consummate cunning to thwart me so long. There never was one less insane, I said. The impression which she made upon me was that of one in whom the emotions and intellect were both powerful. Her will and cunning are well nigh a match for yours. You will have to look sharp. It is easier to pursue than to evade pursuit. She has much the most difficult strategy to conceive and execute. I tell you, Mr. Redfield, I'm bound to see that woman. I shall be so piqued at my failure as to go into a decline if I'm disappointed. He seemed two-thirds in earnest, through his jocular assertion. We did not linger long over the breakfast, being anxious to get back to Brooklyn. After we had withdrawn from the table, he gave me the paper to look over, while he ran up a moment to say something to his daughter. While he was absent, the doorbell rung, and the servant showed a gentleman into the room where I was. "'Well, really!' were the first words I heard. "'Has Mr. Burton taken you for an apprentice, and do you lodge with your employer?' It was James, as usual, when addressing me, with the gay smile covering the sneer. He did not even extend his hand, but stood looking at me a moment, with a sort of defiant menace, which ended with an uneasy glance about the place. If he had been conscious of my secret visit to his haunts, he would have worn something such an expression." I construed it that his restless conscience made him suspicious of his friends. I came down unexpectedly yesterday morning at his request. We got some trace of Leesy Sullivan, and I shall stay until we do something about it. Indeed, he seemed relieved, putting off his ugly look and condescending to be gentlemanly again. Have you found out where the wretched creature has hidden herself? Upon my word, I think if Eleanor knew the case in all its bearings, it might be useful in keeping her from quite killing herself of grief. It was now my turn to be angry. I turned upon him with a flushed face. For God's sake, don't slander the dead, even by imputation, however slight. Whoever put Henry where he lies now, and for what purpose, this much I believe, that no injustice nor sin of his own brought that high heart low. And the villain, I say the villain, who could breathe such a whisper in Eleanor's ear, would be base enough to—to—speak out, smiled James holding me with his softly glittering gaze. 
I will say no more, I ended abruptly, as I heard Mr. Burton's steps approaching. It was evident to me that there was to be no peace between us two. I watched my host while he greeted the new arrival. I wished to satisfy myself if there was a difference in his manner of treating us which would justify my belief that Mr. Burton was not playing a part with me. He was courteous, affable, everything that was desirable or to be expected in a gentleman receiving a friendly acquaintance. That was all. Again I assured myself that it was only toward me that he displayed real liking and affection. But this he did not now display. His face had on its mask, that conventional smile and polish, that air of polite interest, than which nothing is more impenetrable. It was because, in our intercourse alone together, Mr. Burton laid this mask aside that I flattered myself I was his friend and confidant. "'Richard got the start of me,' observed James, after the compliments of the day were over. "'I had not the least idea that he was in town. I came down yesterday to buy myself an overcoat. Important business, wasn't it? And stayed over to the opera, last night being the opening of the new season. Did either of you attend? I did not see you, if there. He tells me that he left in the early morning train, before the one I took. Have you any information of importance, Mr. Burton?' "'We have seen Miss Sullivan.' "'Is it possible? And have you really made up your mind that the poor thing is guilty? If so, I hope you will not fail to have her arrested. I should like very much indeed to have the affair sifted to the dregs.' "'Yes, I suppose so. It is quite natural that you should take an interest in having it sifted, as you say. I assure you that if I have reason enough to warrant an indictment, I shall have one gotten out. In the meantime we must be cautious. The interests involved are too serious to be played with.' certainly they are indeed and unless that young woman is really the dreadful being we believe her we ought not to ruin her by open accusation still i must say she acts extremely like a guilty person she does mr argyll i see but one explanation of her conduct she is herself particeps criminis or she knows who is quite likely indeed we cannot well think otherwise did you say you had actually seen the girl mr burton we saw her yesterday that is mr redfield did may i inquire the result or am i not supposed to be sufficiently interested in the case to have any right to ask questions if so i beg you don't trouble yourselves there are doubtless others who have deeper and different reasons from mine for being conspicuous in the matter as james said this he looked directly at me you know mr burton i have intimated as much before and if i am sometimes imprudent in my speech you must know how hard it is for me to control myself always. I was conscious that I grew pale, as Mr. Burton glanced swiftly at me. I felt so certain that James meant something personal, yet so uncertain how to accuse him of it, or to compel him to explain himself, when he would probably deny there was anything to explain. "'I don't think there's any one has a deeper interest in the matter than you, Mr. Argyll,' said Mr. Burton, with a kind of smooth distinctness of tone which might seem to be impressive, or mean nothing, as the listener chose to understand it. About seeing the girl, Redford has not half so much to tell as I wish he had. In fact, he let her slip through his fingers. A dry laugh was James' comment upon this avowal. Mr. Burton saw that we were inwardly chafing, ready, as it were, to spring upon each other. He took up his hat and gloves. "'Come, gentlemen. We have business on hand of too much importance to permit of ceremony.' Mr. Argyll, I must excuse myself, but if you'll join us, we shall be glad of your aid and company. We are going over to Brooklyn to seek for another glimpse of Leesy Sullivan. 
James slightly started as Brooklyn was mentioned. He had no reason to suppose that anything but courtesy prompted the invitation he received, yet he did not hesitate to accept it. Whether from mere curiosity, or jealousy at being kept out of the detective's full confidence, or a desire to pry into my actions and motives, or a praiseworthy interest, whatever it was prompted him, he kept with us all day, expressing regret as deep as our own when another night came without any results. Being belated, we took our supper in a saloon, as we had done our dinner. I could not but notice that Mr. Burton did not invite James to the house to spend the night, nor converse with him at all about his daughter or his personal affairs. The next morning James returned home, but I remained in the city several days, all this time the guest of Mr. Burton, and becoming more attached to him and his beautiful child. After the first day, Lenore recovered pretty rapidly from the ill effects of the trance. I was, as the ladies say, perfectly charmed with her. A gayer, more airy little sprite never existed than she, when her health permitted her natural spirit to display itself. Her grace and playfulness were befitting her age, childish in an eminent degree, yet poetized, as it were, by an ethereal spirituality which was all her own. To hear her sing would be to wonder how such a depth and height and breadth, such an infinity of melody, could be poured from so young and slender a throat, as I had often wondered, when gazing at the swelling breast of some little triumphant bird, where was hidden the mechanism for all that marvellous power of music. It is said that children know who are their true friends. I do not think that flitting fairy Lenore doubted for an instant that I was hers. We acknowledged a mutual attraction, which it seemed to give her father pleasure to observe. She was, to both of us, a delight and a rest, to which we looked forward after the vexations and disappointments of the day, vexations and disappointments which increased upon us, for every night we had the dissatisfaction of finding some slender thread of probability, which we had industriously unravelled and followed, either abruptly broken off, leaving us standing perplexed and foolish, or else leading to persons and purposes most irrelevant. I should dislike to say how many pale, dark-eyed young women with pretty babies made our unexpected acquaintance during the following week, an acquaintance as brief as it was unsolicited on their part. End of Part 1 Chapter 9